Hey everybody, this is Dave Doctor. What the hell, Dr. Dave Broadback. Dave Broadback here from the Psychology Department at Algoma University for the 22, winter 22 term. And the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 3106, Animal Behavior. Um, maybe some of you thought that animals weren't things that we talked about in psychology, but psychology is the study, the scientific study of behavior and cognition. So here it is, me talking about animal behavior and some of my students asking questions. I hope you enjoy it. If you don't, well, that's on you because I'm really a good teacher. Last time we're talking about natural selection. Uh, should be able to finish this up today. We'll see, though. I'm not gonna if 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 I, I'm not. I don't want to stop you from asking questions. So if you got questions, ask them. Um, this is where we're we ended off, and this was talking about reproductive restraint. Um, and I remember I said that Lack argued that it was about the individual. When Edwards said it was the the group, the the species making a decision. Well, individuals making a decision for the benefit of the group. Um. So that's what Wynne Edwards said. Wynne Edwards, by the way, went to his grave uh, arguing for this still. And there are biologists, this is not a consensus view, but there are biologists, not a lot of them, but there are some who think that there's evidence for group selection. It's, it may happen, oddly enough, in some viruses, uh, but that's about the only I can't think of anything else where I've seen examples. I guess there, there may be an example of group selection in of some invasive species the one example that i can think of offhand is rabbits in australia that were introduced um but that isn't even really accepted uh by the by the sort of scientific community so it's a it's a it's a very small minority view it's not a ridiculous view. i mean i think it's a ridiculous view but i'm not a group selectionist um but people do think that lack however said there's an easier explanation and that's the level of the individual big clutches mean big clutches of eggs mean exhaustion and potentially death. Um, and I think I talked about this last time, right? So the idea here is that we take the uh, number of offspring and then we look at the, uh, and then we take a look at it and we, and we subtract their, um, the amount of uh, investment that has to happen. And you see that the, the optimal solution is right here. So they should actually, to be selfish, to themselves, because they're looking after their own young, they should be have fewer young. And remember, it's lifetime fitness, not just this season. So you might say, well, fine, if I have 73 kids, maybe I die, but I had 73 kids. Well, they probably won't all survive, and you'll be dead. Why don't you wait and have 73 kids over 10 years, and they all live? Okay. And in fact, these are actual data um, from, is that, where was that actually done? Oh yeah, great test. That's right. We were talking about this. This is actually on Whiteham Wood, which is uh, just outside Oxford and um, looking at availability of food over years and clutch size. And in fact, the food availability becomes this limiting factor, which really, when you think about it, makes a great deal of sense. Okay. Okay. 
So here we go. Quality of, 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 of the resource. Right? That's the, what I take, uh, sort of, you can see it says resource, but it's cut off. And so it's very, um, there's been good and bad years in reproductive success. And these are uh, boat-tailed gackles. Great grackles, a great name. Birds have the most ridiculous names. This is 1960. The most frequent clutch size three fledged the largest number of young per nest. However, during 1959 of, of good conditions, unusually large clutches were more successful. So it's based on resources and the resources here are food availability because you got to feed your young. So are they capable of having 17? Well, 17 is probably high, but what are the, these grackles are capable of? It looks like five. Right. And in fact, if it's a really good year, as we have here, if it's a really good year uh, when with uh, um, a lot of resources, so just basically probably not too cold a winter, not a lot of flooding. Um, so food, the, the season starts earlier, all these things put together, you end up with these grackles having five young, except in, in, in a bad year, it's more like around three young. And it's not because they're doing this to help all their other grackles. There's a simpler explanation. Because if they did it, they help all the other grackles. They'd have to know what all the other grackles were doing. They don't have to know anything about other grackles just to follow what's in the environment. So it's a better explanation. Questions? Okay. Dave? Yep. Sorry, I have one. No, um, please. Why do you think... Uh... Like with some birds that have like a, almost like population life cycles, is that due, like what does that do to like some years um, they'll have like a high, like a double or triple hatch kind of thing. And then mm -hmm. it'll slowly go down and then it'll recycle. Like how does that occur? I think that her, uh, and Lack would tell you that the, the, that the reason that occurs is if this is an, an, an exceptional year. I, I, I would bet you all the money in my pocket versus all the money in your pocket. Spoiler alert, I have no money in my pocket, but um, I'd bet you a hundred bucks that you can take a look at how many reproductive cycles a, 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 a pair has over a, a spring, summer and, 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 and correlate that with food availability. And I bet it's almost a freaking straight line. I mean, it's probably not exactly a straight line, but I bet it's very close to one. Uh, it might be the exponential, but it, no, it's probably just a straight line. Uh, so I, I bet it's that. I can also say that there are birds that do have two clutches per year that are more commonly, uh, but they do it very quickly. That's an adaptation, right? Have a, have a one clutch or another, just like some plants uh, flower more than once. Our, our damned apple tree was flowering in November when it got warm. Remember when it got all warm in November there for a little bit, which is ridiculous because the last thing we need is more freaking apples. But yeah, that, that would be my guess. I don't actually know the answer offhand, but I bet you money, like I said, that, that that's that's the answer. Good question. Other stuff on on lack versus Win Edwards. I would call Win Edwards a, a naive group selectionist, which is sort of the ultimate put down you can give a an evolutionary biologist. Dave. Yep. Clutch size is the number of eggs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Eggs laid at once. Yep. It's a clutch of eggs. Yeah. It's like a it's like a a, a litter of of young in in a mammal. It's the same sort of thing. All right. Now, Hamilton, Bill Hamilton, W.D. Hamilton, figure, had, had a different approach. His response was theoretical. Um, Hamilton's a hell of a guy. I actually, um, I was lucky enough to meet Hamilton and uh, uh, when I was at Oxford, and I was walking down the street, just looking around town, being shown around by a guy named Alex Koselnik, who's a 
much more important than I will ever be. Uh, the zoology department at Oxford is kind of scary. The number of like people you go, oh, he's there and he's there and he's there and he's there. Oh, she's there too. And she's there and she's there and he's there. It's, it's crazy. Anyway, we're walking in the street and I ran into, um, we ran into this guy. Uh, he was very pleasant. Uh, he was wearing an overcoat because it was England and it was January. And he, he, he said, um, Alex introduced me. He said, this is David Broadbeck. Uh, and I said, you know, sort of like, I didn't know who he was. But he looked familiar because I'd seen him in books. Uh, and he said, oh, yes, yes. You're the, you're the lad from Canada who's going to speak about chickadees. Is that correct? I said, yeah, it's, I'm going to give a talk tomorrow. And then one on, also one on pigeon uh, memory uh, the day after that. Very good. I really enjoy the, the, the chickadee work. It's very good, the work you're doing. And I thought, oh, thank you very much. And that was the end of the interaction. And then Alex Kaselnik said to me, do you know who that was? I said, he really looks familiar, but no. He said, well, that's, that's Bill Hamilton. And I went, huh? And he said, you know, you have more publications than he does. And I said, well, that may be true, but none of mine completely changed the way we look at evolutionary biology. Um, it was a really great moment. And Hamilton is just, was, was, he's gone now, a super nice guy. And when you're really smart and you're super nice, it's cool. So sometimes meeting, meeting your heroes is cool. Um, he said, let's look at, and this has got people like Hamilton, like Dawkins, people in the Oxford um, zoology department. Uh, were really influential, still are, about a lot of this stuff. And he said, let's look at behavior from the genes perspective, not from the individual animal, not from the group, but from the gene. Okay, so if you've read, we talked to a couple of us talked the other day about the selfish gene. It's that kind of thing. So he talked about we have inclusive fitness, which equals direct fitness, that's your reproductive success, plus the effect of fit of uh, you have on others fitness. Okay. So your inclusive fitness is your fitness, your direct fitness, having kids and that they survive to the adult breeding population and the effect on fitness of others, especially, and of course, obviously those who are related to you. Okay. So Hamilton said that the cost of any behavior has to be less than the relatedness tie that you have to the individual that you're behaving towards times the benefit you receive. Now, you in this case can be an individual, but Hamilton looked at this from the gene level. Okay. So we could re- this isn't magic. If you don't remember how to play with inequalities, all I've done is say that relatedness has to be greater than C divided by B, cost divided by benefit. Relatedness, we measure in up from zero up to one. One is you. I'm related to me 100%. I'm related to my brother, 0.5. I'm related to my sister, 0.5. Related to my mom, 0.5. I'm related to my sister's kids, 0.25, right? Because I'm half to my sister and then her genes are split in half along with her husband, Andrew's genes. So I'm related to them by 0.25, a quarter. So R is relatedness, C is cost and B is benefit. So the question then becomes, would you give your life for a brother? And in fact, the answer to this question is no, but two brothers. <laughs> 
<laughs> or, or brother and a sister, two sisters, or maybe eight cousins, because cousins is 0.125. That's eight times 0.125. So as long as it, and in fact, maybe two brothers and a cousin, yes. A question I had on a, on a, on a an exam in grad school was it just, it, it started like this. Your house is on fire. <laughs> By the way, I've had a house fire. It's scary. Um, and the following people are in the house and they're, they're all trapped. Who do you rescue in what order and why? And in there you have your grandparents, your parents, you have your spouse, you have kids of varying ages. Um, you have an uncle and you have your dog. Who do you rescue first? Well, it's the oldest kid because they're the closest to reproductive age. <laughs> no one thinks like this. So we were told, of course, in the question to do it from the perspective of just cold calculation like this. And you would first rescue the oldest kid, then the next kid, and then finally the youngest kid. Why do you rescue the youngest kid last? Because you can make more kids. Then you rescue your parents. Then you rescue... Did I mention a brother or sister? You do those before your parents probably because um, your parents can't make any more copies of your genes, but your brother or sister can. Um, and then eventually the final thing you rescue is your dog because it doesn't share nearly as many, many genes with you as, you know, other humans. I think Talk there was broad back. Please. Um, if you were considering certainty, wouldn't you save your sister over your brother because uh, her offspring are guaranteed to have your genes, yeah. whereas your brother's... Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. I was uh, making the answer more simple, but yes, that's correct. Because you're, you always know when your sister has a baby that that is related to you, assuming your sister is related to you. <laughs> but so there's always certainty of paternity, certainly of parenthood from a, a, a female a mammal. That's just how it works because the mother always knows it's her kid. You know why? Because it comes out of them. The father isn't always ever sure. There's some, if you ever, if you take evolutionary psych, uh, and some of you took it with me last year, there's some really fascinating data on when uh, babies are born and what the, what the mother's parents say. The mother's parents, when it's, um, the mother's parents, sorry, are more likely to tell the guy, okay, that the baby, in fact, 70% of the time, they say it looks like the guy. And the father's parents are 50-50 because actually it's 50-50. The mother's parents, and they don't know they're doing this. They're not doing this on purpose. What they're, the function of this behavior, they're trying to tell the partner, the guy, oh, yeah, that was your kid. We're sure. We're sure it's your kid. It's totally your kid. It's totally your kid. It's wild, right? And it's cross-cultural, which is very cool. A lot of these weird results like this. You don't think of these things when you're, at least I didn't, when, I, when you have kids, but it is the case that the male can never know. The female always knows. And that's true of any, anything with internal fertilization and, and birth. Yep. It's fascinating stuff. Mm. Yeah, two uncles and a mother. <laughs> two uncles, that's 0.25 and a mother's 0.5. That's all together. That's one. That's me. And probably have to, well, something else to go over the top. Hi, sir. Can you yeah. hear me? Yeah, sure. I just thought of a, a, a podcast I was listening to on the CBC, and they were talking about a research study they did on a primate. I think it was chimpanzees. Okay. They're trying to figure out why the, the female had this really loud orgasm um, and moaning when she was having sex. Okay. It's, it was a little weird, but 
what they found out is that it, it was like a call out to other males that she was fertile. So the point of it was that when she was, you know, have, going at it, all these other males would come and fight for her. And the reason that she wanted all the males to go at her was that they were less aware of, like, they, they thought that her kid potentially could be theirs and they were less aggressive towards the kid. Yes. That's so cool. it was. Did you know who, the, who did that work, by the way? That sounds, I want to read the paper <laughs> offhand. I'm not know? sure, but it was, no, it was, it was on the CBC, but they, they also said that's why. Um, the males had a quicker um, fun time because they had to get in and get out. Otherwise, they'd have to fight off other males. Yes. And that's why the females would also last longer because so they have to enjoy it more to have more kids or have more dads. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think the, the technical term for that is porn Z. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, that's fascinating stuff. And we see a lot of this kind of thing in the, in the animal kingdom. I mean, this is why I'm talking about it is that it's fascinating, this kind of stuff and, and how it ends up that behavior that clearly isn't I gotta make, be careful how I word this. When a human, human parents do this uh, or grandparents, they don't know, they're not doing this for that reason. When the chimpanzee doesn't know, she's not capable of thinking, well, what I'll do now, it's just that these things get selected for, right? Evolution is blind, it doesn't know, it just does stuff. And that works. So that behavior would be selected for. Fascinating stuff, man. That was great. I really am going to go find that out. I got a couple of friends who work with chimps. I'm just more curious about anything. Is it actually a friend of mine who did the work? I'm not entirely sure if it was chimpanzees, but it was definitely a primate. I'm sorry. Could have been bonobo. I think this is uh, a common, like, I don't think this is just in chimps. Oh, no, I've just heard this before. The female... Um, copulating with multiple individuals to increase the likelihood or I guess decrease the likelihood of an attack from a male after mm -hmm. birth uh, because it's a chance that it's theirs. I I'm almost positive that I've heard this in other yeah. species as well. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff about this. Um, it's funny for the longest time. Here we go. New theory suggests female orgasms are an evolutionary. And I got to feel it, read the rest of this and see when this is from. Uh, are an evolutionary leftover, whatever. Um, <laughs> having bad sex, don't blame yourself or your partner, blame evolution. That's you're mixing up cause and function. Uh, okay, that's this is this is actually from science, but anyway, the thing about this stuff is that it shouldn't surprise us this is that this kind of thing happens, and it also shouldn't surprise us that this affects our fitness. When I say our, it could be any animal here. It also finally shouldn't surprise us that we have no idea we're doing it. We have no idea we're doing these things. We being chimps, we being people. Uh, there's stuff about sperm competition in humans that's mind-blowing that I'll, I'll talk about later in the course, but it's mind-blowing. Um, okay, so there's got to be a mechanism here because if you're going to detect relatedness, if you're going to make this calculation, how the hell do you know who's related to you? And that, I don't care if you're a rat, a person, or a slug. If this is, and by the way, this inclusive fitness thing works. Like it explains all kinds of stuff when you model this stuff. So we have to have some way of detecting. A gene has to be able to detect itself if we're looking at this from a gene level. So there must be some proximate mechanism. This is really easy for a mother or a father and a child, right? I know my kids are my kids. So I know they share half my genes with me. I just know that. Okay, that's easy. 
but how about everybody else? Like how, how is it the case? Now here's some interesting, weird human data. How is it that people pick when people, when you compare people's friends to, to randomly selected strangers who aren't people's friends, that they're more likely to share the same blood type? What? How is that possible? When you meet people, do you ask them for a blood test? If you do, I don't want to know. That's a little weird. So how in the hell? What? So there's got to be a mechanism. Robert Trivers came up with this idea of um, the green beard hypothesis. So this is just a thought experiment. There, aren't, there isn't really a green beard gene, okay? So some allele produces a phenotype, in this case, a green beard, and it also produces... It also allows for recognition. So this, this allele has at least two functions. One of them is that it produces the green beard. It also produces a mechanism for detecting green beards. So I can detect individuals who are related to me by seeing if they have similar characteristics that I have. Okay. This seems kind of tough for a single gene to do. That's too pretty. Though we had talked about the crickets uh and they had the uh the gene and then the, the males produce singing and the females produce the like liking that excuse me liking that kind of singing so it's possible but it's doesn't seem ex exceedingly likely what about proximity um this is not bad if you have parental care in a species Knowing that you grew up beside somebody, so your brother or your sister, is a pretty good indication that they're related to you. So if someone, and if there's little dispersal in the species, so they stay in the same sort of area, if that's the case, you know that individuals you have met are more likely to be related to you. So if they're close by, they're more likely to be related to you. Okay. So here's an example, uh, some leaf-eating ants. Uh, this is basically just taking ants uh, from one nest and another. And um, if you take the further away the nest was, the more hostile another nest is, okay? So if you had like, the hell, there it goes. So in experiments like this, you have one ant's nest here, whoops, and one here, and one here, okay? And you take ants from this nest, and you introduce them here, and you also introduce them here. And you just see how hostile the ants are in these two colonies to these ants. And these ones here are more hostile, the further away they are, than these ones here that are a little bit closer. Again, we don't necessarily have to know the me mechanism, but we see the behavior. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, oh, this might be a dumb question, but uh, <laughs> I was wondering when you meant by, are you friends with people with the same blood type? Or, is that what you're saying? Yes. Really? You're more, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's weird. So, I know. Okay. So like you share a similar blood type to the, to the friends that you choose. Okay. Gotcha. Bet more than chance, better than chance, because we know the chance of certain blood types. That's something that's just, you can look that up. You probably learned that in grade nine, and I probably did too, and I've forgotten, and I'm sure you've forgotten it too. Um, maybe you haven't, maybe you remember it completely, but 
you're more light when you look then at your blood type and compare it to your friends, they are more likely to share the blood, that same blood type with you than chance. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild, right? But it's also a thing. And then I guess that's why, like, I guess in like, uh, uh, I guess like in Japan and Korea, they take, they take the blood type, they turned it like a horoscope or something really seriously. Maybe. I mean, that's a whole cultural thing that happens in both of those places. Um, and I don't know what the function of it is, but it may have come from that, but it may just be, and it may be real. A lot of things that are culturally driven that we look at and go, oh, that's pretty an interesting cultural difference. A lot of times when you look at it from a functional perspective, you go, oh, I see. Um, that might make some sense, right? You've got two pretty, you got Japan as a, uh, was uh, geographically isolated from the rest of Asia. So you want to be able to detect relatives because you don't want to mate with relatives. Maybe that's why. I'm not saying that is why. I'm saying I can make up a nice story. The problem is it's pretty easy to make up a nice story. It may not be true. But yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole blood type thing in Japan is is um, is different than here. I'll say that. I'm not judging it. I'm just saying it's different than here. Um, now, if you take nests from different plants, not just far away and close on the same leaf, these are really small ants, but you put them on a different plant, oh, they're really hostile. And ants, hostile ants will fight, eh? Like they'll rip each other's heads off. I've, you ever get a chance to watch a bunch of ants um, and you got a lot of free time? <laughs> uh, you see a bunch of ants walking around um, and you can catch another ant, you can actually make them fight. I'm not saying that's nice, but they're ants. Don't have the ants rights people come after me. What if we split a colony off and put them on two different plants. So we just take a colony, we split it apart and we make them, they live in now two different plants. They never interact with each other. And then we do the thing where we actually make them interact. They are hostile to each other, but they don't kill each other. That's the gene environment interaction right there. So the environment, the environment part is like, I've never met this ant before. These aren't my friends, but then there's the genetic part. It's like, yeah, but I'm not going to kill them. <laughs> it's wild, right? I love it. Love it. Uh, vervet monkeys. So you're saying, oh, it's ants, Dave. What about vervet monkeys? Um, Two-year-olds scream. That's what they do um, when they're being, uh, when they're looking for attention. The mother comes. Okay. Everybody else watches the mother. Because the, everybody else and the mother can tell their own kids scream. And I can tell you, having heard vervet monkeys scream literally in person, they don't seem any different to me, <laughs> but to the vervet monkeys, they are because they can detect their own young and they're probably not detecting some genetic thing. They've just learned over time. They've heard it enough that they can tell. Pretty cool, right? It's fascinating stuff. Okay. This is one of my favorite papers is uh, Greenberg looked at uh, bee relatedness and allowing bees in to a hive or not. And we can take a look here. Uh, this is the average coefficient of relation, uh, relationship. This one, of course, is your complete, it's you. And zero is they're not related at all. And this is the proportion of, um, what's that say again? Passes by uh, introduced bees. In other words, this is basically a measure of, of, of aggression. Look at the beautiful straight line. Look at the beautiful straight line. How are they doing this? It's probably odor. It's probably through pheromones. 
we don't know. Greenberg doesn't know, but uh, and I don't know that anybody knows the answer to this stuff. And this is actually not a new experiment. It's 1979, but um, it's a pretty robust result. It's very cool. All right, questions before I do a little. Th oh, I got. I think I've got something in the chat here. What's that say? Don't penguins have a similar mechanism? They may very well. A lot of animals do these things. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Not at all. So some conclusions about inclusive fitness. Um, group selection is silly uh, it, it, because I can explain the behavior with something simpler. Individual selection, I think, is probably the easiest way to go, but gene level selection is probably what's going on. Gene level selection can affect individuals. Right. So we can usually use individuals as a, what's the word I'm looking for? Stand in. Let's go with that. It's not really quite the word I'm looking for, but it's a stand in for a gene. And Hamilton is a genius. Bill Hamilton, just a genius, like a really, 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 really smart guy. All right. Uh, yeah. Don't penguins have similar mechanism? They're able to recognize the chick out of hundreds in the nesting sites. Yeah. Any colony nesting bird can do that. And most penguins, I don't know about all of them, but I think, I think most penguins actually are colony nesters. They aren't um, uh, like they don't nest individually, they nest in colonies. And yeah, they have to be able to recognize their young. So they do. And they shouldn't be able to, because I don't know if you ever looked at penguins, they all look the same, but there's something different that the individual, that the, that the moms, especially, um, and many penguins are monogamous. So you end up with both pairs can recognize the uh, young. It's pretty cool. We don't know what the mechanisms are typically for these things, but we can see the behavior and we can understand the function. Don't overuse this um, kind of thing, the over inclusive fitness thing. Uh, it, it can, it's, it's very powerful to, and these ideas are powerful, but they can also make you over, well, just overuse these kind of things. It does, however, give us some insight into some very, na into some very nasty human behavior. Um, we're good at recognizing, humans are amazing at recognizing individuals, and we're probably the most different looking individual, well, I know we are, of any other primate species. We all look different, way more than anything else. This may be a mechanism, this may have evolved so we could keep track of social interactions. In fact, this has always been my guess is that, that the reason that we all look so different is it's helpful for, ever, for me if you can remember that I was nice to you. It's helpful for you if you can remember I was nice to you. It's also helpful if you can remember that I was an asshole to you. Either way, it's good, right? Um, so because of this, we can recognize relatives pretty easily. And we can recognize, ex we can recognize not just relatives, but... Well, relatives, but distant, more distant relatives. Uh, humans evolved such that we probably probably lived in groups of about thirty to fifty people, and we were all pretty much related. Up until people started, you know, um, living in settlements a little bit, um, that kind of thing. So it may have actually made some weird sense. When I say sense, I don't mean I'm condoning this, but to dislike people or be not be as nice to people who look different than you do. So what I'm saying is there may be a reason for people to not be nice to others based on all kinds of things, the language they speak, the religion they have, the color of their skin. The cool thing you can do as a human, because we're, we're, we're the only species on this planet who's aware of all this stuff, is you can say, I will not do that today. 
And a chimp or a bee can't do that. But we can. And this is not excusing behavior. It's understanding it. You don't excuse it because we're humans and we know better. Right? I think that's like such an important point that you brought up. Um, Thank you. In the, in the fact that like some people don't want to hear it. Like when you're, when you're trying to explain uh, a reason for why people act a certain way so that we can better understand it and like work towards a solution yes. for it. Yes. Some people don't want to hear, well, there might be a genetic reason for it. And I think it's like, you, you almost get, they get childish about it where it's like, no, people aren't born racist or like, well, maybe they're not born racist per se. No. And maybe there is some cultural aspect, but to understand why they so easily fall into these patterns. Yeah. And then, you know, yeah. if we discuss it openly, we can then, yeah. you know, educate people on why that's not a good, you know. Exactly. And, and the, what we can do is we can say to people, this actually didn't even make sense 150,000 years ago. This is a vestige of something that may have made sense a long time ago, but people have been moving around this planet for so long. This maybe made sense a quarter of a million years ago. And even then it probably didn't help a whole lot, probably just a little, but this is probably a vestige of something. And the nice thing we can do is we can say, as I said, I will not behave this way. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It is wrong, but saying we have an explanation doesn't say it's, and even if it's one that has something to do with inclusive fitness, doesn't mean I am saying it's right. In fact, I'm, uh, that kind of behavior kind of, kind of completely disgusts me um, when I see it, but I can view that and say, without excusing it, I can then, the nice thing I can do is I can use this same information and show people that we're more similar than we are different. So if I say, yeah, that's true. That person does speak a different language than you. You know what else is true? They're just like you. You got one little stupid marker you're paying attention to, and there's a zillion others, you know, where we're not. Humans are the most genetically similar animals. We're the most inbred primate after jaguars. And jaguars are notoriously inbred. Um, we're really inbred. And I know we all look different and you think that's weird, it's, but it's true. There's some weird thing about us looking different and that's probably so we can differentiate between each other so we can remember when I've been a jerk to you or I've been nice to you, et cetera. And we'll talk about that uh, later in the course when I get more, uh, a little more stuff about humans and other animals. But um, we're way more similar to each other than any other primate. Like it's ridiculous. And sorry, any other mammal really. So keep that in your mind. And when you know that, then you could even say, if someone says, yeah, but they're different than us, you can say, yeah, actually, no, we're more similar to each other than any other mammal species. So you're a racist and shut up. <laughs> All right, let's shift gears and talk a bit about game theory, which is wild stuff. Animals tend to behave in ways that maximize their inclusive fitness. Okay. And that's usually a pretty straightforward thing, but sometimes we have to know what others are doing before we adopt a strategy. And again, you're not aware you're doing these things. And when I say you, this is an animal, any animal species. So I'm not necessarily thinking about humans, but we could, but I'm not thinking about humans. I'm just thinking about generic animals here. Like what if your mating call is drowned out by other 
others' calls, then you shouldn't be mating, right? You shouldn't be doing a mating call. You should find some other way to find mates, right? So what do you do? So in certain cases, payoffs, and then uh, obviously the fitness maximization depends on what other populations are doing. So what do you, what would be one thing you could do when everybody else is calling and then you're not being heard? Well, why don't you just wait till they all shut up and then you do your mating call? You're more likely to find a mate that way because you're not going to be drowned out, right? For example. So when the payoff to one individual depends on the behavior of others, we cannot use the principles of fitness maximization until we know a few things. One of the things, some of the things we have to know are what are the alternative possibility, like the alternative strategies, um, the probability of encountering those, those alternatives and the consequences of an encounter. So we have to know the alternative possibilities, the alternative things we could do or that others could do, the probability of encountering those alternatives and the consequences of any encounter. Okay. Think, you got to think this like a game. Each individual behavior is its strategy. And the payoffs are in units of fitness. So this is we're, we're setting up a game here. Players produce more players. Those are offspring. Okay. So we're going to look at this in units of fitness. Changes in fitness are directly proportional to payoffs. Well, that makes sense because changes in fitness give you more young and the currency, we'll call this the currency, is young. So that makes sense. Okay. What's called an evolutionarily stable strategy is one that when adopted by enough individuals maximizes payoff. Okay. So I've given you all the preamble. Let's think of something like what's called a pure strategy, which is one that cannot be replaced. It's such a good strategy that everyone adopts the strategy and it cannot be replaced. My, an example I use here is food storing in birds. Uh, I use that example because uh, my career depended on studying food storing birds. Okay. You should recover your own seeds. And this is a mathematical model that was come up by Anderson and Krebs, 1978. That's John Krebs, whose father won a Nobel Prize discovering a thing called the Krebs cycle you may have heard of. Uh, I know John. I know John quite well. And I once said to him, if my father was a Nobel Prize winning biologist, I wouldn't have gone into biology. I would have gone into NASCAR. And even I had to explain to a, an Englishman what NASCAR was. Um, you should recover your own seeds. If you recovered communally, so let's say we all store our food, we all go out and we store our seeds all out in the environment and everything's nice and we live in some socialist paradise and everybody's from each according to his ability to each according to their need and we're each getting, so I turn this light down a bit, there you go. I wanted a bit of light though. Um, if, 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 so we all store all over the place and we all recover communally. A selfish hoarder would replace communal hoarders very quickly, right? Because if you store for everybody and I'm just storing for me, I win. You know what would work even better? Don't store at all. The hell with the rest of you. So that strategy would disappear. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? So what Anderson Krebs found is that the only way this is going to work, food storing, how the only way it can evolve is if you are recovering your own seeds.
Okay. What if we had, and that's a, that's a pure strategy. So the birds that store food recover their own seeds. Uh, anything that stores food recovers their own hordes. They don't, nobody else does it. Okay. Now let's think about what are called hawks and doves. And this is stuff that was come up with by John Maynard Smith in geez, the 1970s. Um, these aren't real hawks and real doves. <clears throat> these are strategies. A hawk is a fighter. A dove isn't. This goes back to people talked about during the Vietnam War, uh, politicians were either classed as hawks or doves, so they wanted to continue the war or end the war. Okay, so remember, these are strategies. These, this is within a single species. These are not actual hawks and doves. So hawks always fight for resources. Doves always go, no, I give up. So let's look at the possible payoffs and look at the costs of these different strategies. Okay. And then we have to determine what proportion should be hawks and what proportion should be doves. So let's say it's all doves. A hawk shows up, it's gonna win all the time, right? Because doves always give up and hawks are always ready to fight. So the hawks are always going to win those confrontations over a resource. That resource could be anything. I like to think of it as being food. Um, and then the payoff is in uh, fitness. It doesn't have to be food. It can be, you know, quality territory, whatever, but let's just go with food. It may, at least I like to think that because it makes it easier for me to think about it actually. So then what's going to happen is the hawk's going to spread its genes, its hawk genes and replace doves. So now we have more hawks. Okay, uh-oh, now a few generations later, everybody's a hawk. So now you're always fighting over resources, aren't you? And let's just say that, this is just to make the math easy, that the probability of, of losing a fight, and when you lose a fight, you're injured. The probability of an injury then becomes 0.5. You lose half the time, you win half the time. Okay. Now being a dove pays, doesn't it? If everybody else is fighting, over resources and you're like, I'll just wait till you guys fight and I'll go over here and get some resources. Thank you. So that'd be a dove pace. Either of these strategies is good when it's rare and it's bad when it's common. When it's common, it's not a good strategy because either you're always fighting or you're always, or you're gonna always lose to a hawk that comes along if you're a dove. Okay, let's define some terms in a little bit. We're gonna do a little, I never said there'd be no math. Um, by the way, I'm not gonna make you do one of these on a test. It's just not who I am. Um, if you understand the concept, I'm good. I don't wanna make you do this kind of thing on a test. I just don't know where it gets me. In this course, take behavioral ecology. I bet Dr. Foote does that. And I think should, if, if, you know, if she does it, that's cool. I just don't do it in this class. Uh, the second half of this class, which is 3107, which is behavioral ecology, you almost certainly will do this because it's a little more mathy. So V is the value of a resource for the winner. W is the cost of a wound because you get hurt. It's a cost. Like it, you, you, less, you can't mate for a while, whatever, right? T is the cost of a display. Now a display is what? This is what doves do. Give me a Prince, right? This is what it sounds like when doves cry. Um, 
So teach the cost of display. What happens for displaying is when two doves run into each other, they just, they do like a display, a little dance. And eventually one gives up and gets the resource. No one gets hurt. They just waste time dancing around. Okay, so they just waste time dancing around. Do I have that song? I do. Okay. Right? That's song. When Doves Cry? Anyway. My Prince? I have a lot of music. All right. This is John Maynard Smith, 1978. Smart guy. Okay. So we are set up a payoff matrix. I hope someone got the reference to the movie, The Matrix by the title of the slide. So this is the, your opponent in a contest is on top. And then on the, we have, you can either be a hawk or a dove could be your opponent. And the payoff for a hawk, when he runs into a hawk, he or she, but when they run into a hawk is one half, because it happens half the time, times the value of the resource minus the, the cost of a wound. Okay. If a hawk runs into a dove, he just gets the resource, right? There's no cost. There's just like the, the dove is like, no, no, please, sir. Take it. Would you like my watch? There's, there's, there's no fight. There's no time either. It's just like the dove strategy is I give, if you're going to fight, you know, the dove is I'm a lover, not a fighter. Payoff received here for a by a dove when he runs into a hawk is zero because the dove's like, I give. There's no cost in time, but you never win the thing. When a dove runs into a dove, another dove, the, the assumption here is they each split, you get half the value because you each eventually decide, oh, okay, I'll take it. You, you get half the value of the resource minus the time you've wasted by doing your little dance. Okay. Questions about this so far? Any questions I can answer? And remember, these are not real hawks or doves. It's their strategies. Imagine if war was done the dove way, just dancing. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, seriously, Mallory, um, this, this does come out of the, of the 1970s and people, you know, the idea of getting rid of war. And if, if only we could. If only yeah, we could. that's true. Uh, it's it's not go it's not going anywhere, but if only we could. The notion that we can solve problems based on rational ideas mm -hmm. and negotiation, we're way better. The humans are way better at this than we've ever been. Like way better. Um, I don't think any of you probably are old enough to remember back when we used to worry about nuclear war every day. <laughs> so the world is safer than it's ever been, minus the COVID. Um, but yeah, if only, if only. Um, so there's the payoffs. Any, any comments about this questions? Does this make sense? Okay. So how are we going to figure this out? This is called an ESS, an evolutionarily stable strategy. If W is greater than V, there can be no pure ESS because if the, the effect of a wound is greater than the effect of the value of the resource, no one's going to fight over the resource. A small number of doves would win every time. Okay, 
In this case, that would mean the expected return of a dove when it runs into a hawk is greater than the expected value of a hawk when it runs into a hawk, right? Because the dove gets nothing, hawks lose in this scenario. Okay. The expected value of a dove running into a hawk is zero, but that's, that's better than nothing or that's better than negative. It's not better than nothing. It literally is nothing. It's better than negative value. The expected value of a hawk running to a hawk is this, as we said, W has to be greater than V, which makes this less than zero. Okay, so that wouldn't work. Pure doves don't work either. If we only have doves, the payoff matrix for a hawk is V just gets the resource all the time. And doves, it's less than that. So you can see what we're going to have here is some proportion of hawks and some proportion of doves is going to be stable. We're going to have multiple strategies that can exist in one population. So the question then becomes, what proportion of hawks and doves balances this out, balances out these equations? So what you have to do is a little bit of math. You got to find the proportion P of hawks it says of hawks, of hawks. Why does it say of hawks? It says of hawks twice. Such that the following equations balance. In other words, okay, P is the proportion of hawks. The number of hawks times the payoff for a hawk has to equal the payoff for a dove running into a hawk. Sorry. Yes. Uh, hawk running into a dove, sorry. And then when a, hawk run, a dove runs into a hawk, zero and one minus P, which is times a half V over minus T. So we have to, I'm, you want me to go through how to do this? I'm not going to. What you have to do is balance these equations. This is something you all, you learned how to do in high, early high school math. Simply <laughs> solve for P. What you end up with is P equals V plus two T divided by W plus two T. Why is this useful? Well, what we've done is we've modeled a couple of strategies. This is very simple modeling. This is the kind of modeling people do when they try to figure out uh, ESSs in different populations. So let's pretend V equals 10 and W equals 20 and T equals three. I just picked numbers. These are in fitnesses, <laughs> they aren't real things. This is theoretical. There's a whole branch of biology that doesn't involve doing anything with animals or plants or fungi or bacteria, etc. It involves doing things with numbers. We just basically all I've done here is sub into the formulas from the last page. And I get negative five, 10, zero, and two. That's the payoffs that are received if these things are true, if those are the values. So all I've done is just sub numbers in. The numbers aren't that important, but the point is I can do this. And we go back to the formula. And to make this, though, those equations balance out, P equals 16 26 or 8 thirteenths. That says that then 8 thirteenths of the population with those payoff values must be hawks. So if 8 thirteenths are hawks, 5 thirteenths are doves. With those payoff values, we can get a mixed ESS. This is a mixed ESS. And by the way, this can be eight thirteenths of the population 
are hawks, or it can mean eight thirteenths of the time behave like a hawk and the other five thirteenths behave like a dove. And like I said, I'm not gonna make you do one of these um, because I just don't think it's, it's beyond the scope. Of, as long as you understand the, the notion here, I don't think you have to be able to do these. And the values aren't that important anyway. The important thing is actually coming up with the, the model. That's something, again, I wouldn't have you do if this was the, if I was teaching 3107, we do it in that class. But what you can do is think about some situation and you can model it. Like, it's not like this is that hard to do. When you look at the payoffs for hawks and they're into a hawk, hawk and run into a dove, and you make some assumptions, you actually could build one of these payoff matrices. It's not that horribly hard. It's something you can do. One can do. So like I said, it could be the percentage of, of the population or the percentage of the time each animal adopts a given strategy. The point though, is that you can determine at what point a strategy can coexist, two strategies or three. Uh, on a final exam that I had in graduate school, we had to have three uh, different strategies and we were just given a hypothetical animal, which didn't exist. <laughs> and we were given, and here are some possible behaviors they can have. And there were three behaviors for each animal. So we had to do a three by three by three matrix. So you had to build a cube, not a, a I'm not saying it was easy, but it was doable. It took a long time. It was the same exam where I answered, who do you rescue from the fire first? So people often ask me, so who cares about this? Well, it actually is applicable to, to real life. So we don't look at hawks and doves necessarily, but let's look at toads looking for breeding grounds. This is uh, Davies and Holloway. This goes back to a, a classic book, uh, Krebs and Davies' uh, book on behavioral ecology. So they determine, I'm not gonna go into what the model is. They determine the payoffs and it looks like, so we can take a look at what the model is and the model's here, right? Which one's the model? The model is the filled circles or sorry, the, the uh, empty circles. And the filled circles predict where they're gonna mate. Gee, the model does a pretty good job, doesn't it? That's pretty, okay. What about dung flies? These are flies that, well, you know what the word dung means? These are flies that like poo. This is why, by the way, um, I don't like flies because they hang around poo. Um, how long should a male hang around a poop? Because he's looking for females, right? As it ages, this <laughs> is really a gross topic. Here's the model. I didn't have to tell you which one's the model and which one's the data, because <laughs> they freaking overlap. These are simple ESS models too. These are things people think up in their heads, don't have to work out with computers. Right, because again, this is from the 70s. This one is from 78. These are old results. They're, I, I got both of these from uh, Krebs and Davies' book called Behavioral Ecology, which is a classic. It's a classic book. So we can use these techniques to make actual predictions about behavior. That's what's cool about this. This is clearly a really brief introduction to game theory. And I imagine, again, as I said, if you take 3107 with Dr. Foote, uh, who usually teaches it, 
um, or probably there's a population gen population genetics class in biology department. You probably take that. They'll deal with this kind of stuff and a lot more modeling. But if this stuff interests you, those are places to go. This stuff is really powerful for simple modeling. Like this doesn't involve having to have a powerful computer. You have to think about the payoffs and costs. The, the hardest part of this is the thinking. What are the payoffs? What are the costs? What are the benefits? That's hard. That involves sitting down and imagining, oh, what's going to happen? And they're not hawks and doves, they're dung flies. So you have to imagine what's the payoffs to hang around a, a piece of shit. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Uh, for a long period of time. And what are the benefits? The costs, it seems to me, are you're hanging around poo. Of course, I'm not a dung fly. What's becoming much more popular now, even though these, these models are very good, the data with the, um, with the flies is amazing. It's perfect. But the um, but these more common now are what's called dynamic programming models. What happens in these situations is things change, the payoffs change depending upon the proportions in the in the in the um, in the population. So with the original hawk and dove kind of ESS uh, analysis game, game uh, payoff matrix. The payoffs don't change, the payoffs change, but the way you calculate those payoffs doesn't change. In dynamic programming, it changes all the time and that's probably closer to reality. It used to be people didn't do this because it involved powerful computers. <laughs> computers that were never as powerful as my phone. Uh, it's now the case that people do this much more often. So you know what? You don't have to do it all the time. The dung fly results show you that you actually can do this with really simple back of an envelope modeling with a paper and you know with a, with a pencil. Okay, questions about that stuff before we wrap up with a couple of extra things here. Like I said, I'm not gonna make you do one in a test. Okay, I mean, I'll tell you something though, you know what makes a really good definition question? ESS, you do that, you throw me in some hawks and doves, give me a little payoff matrix, explain it how it works. There's a, there's a good definition question, there's five points for you. Let's talk about a couple other evolutionary theories quickly that are wrong. <laughs> There's Lamarckism. This is the idea of inheritance of, a, of acquired characteristics. Um, for example, um, giraffes wanted leaves, so they stretched their necks. Uh, this sounds crazy, but a lot of people think this way. You've probably heard this. We will all one day have giant heads and atrophied bodies because we don't need our bodies anymore because we can do everything. We can do everything over Zoom. Cave-dwelling fish, um, it says swelling, it should say dwelling. Cave-dwelling fish don't use their eyes so they disappear. Um, cave-dwelling fish don't have eyes, some cave-dwelling fish. Why? Give me an evolutionary reason of why cave-dwelling fish don't have eyes. Anyone? Is it because it's a bit too dark and so they don't really need that function for having eyes? Okay, that's the, that's, that's the first part. It doesn't help them in any way. How could it hurt them to have eyes? Because it has to be beneficial to not have them. It takes resources to develop eyes. And if you're developing organs that you're not yeah. really going to use, they're yeah. just going to be a detriment. So the two, you put, the two of you together got it, which is it doesn't provide any benefit and it actually, it actually, it's detrimental because not only does it cost resources to build an eye, eyes get infected. 
you can get you can get hurt in an eye. So, yep, that's right. So two years, nice, nice work. Um, there's another one. We don't use our appendix. Um, that's why it's disappearing. No, we don't digest cellulose anymore. We that's not in our diet. We don't, that's your appendix was for was for digesting um, cellulose. So basically wood fiber. Because we're not beavers. Another one is orthogenesis. This is a notion that there's some goal or planned evolution. And we often talk like that is short form among ourselves. But you got to be careful when you're talking to the general public. So you don't say evolution did this to do, to do this. The only thing evolution does is maximize fitness. That's all it cares about. Um, it doesn't really care about it. There's no plan. There's no goal. It just is. Evolution just is. There's no idea of an evolutionary ladder. There's no top rung. It's funny, you know who thinks these things? People who think that humans are special. <laughs> we're cool. We're pretty cool animals, but we're not special. We're not the top. All other animals aren't striving to become us. And finally, finally, is it the final slide? I think it is. Um, intelligent design. This is basically creationism with a fancy name. So all intelligent design is, is it the idea that there's a designer? Um, and I'm, I would go so far as to say God doesn't belong in a science class very much. Just like, I don't think me giving a talk at a local church, unless they ask me, I'd probably do that, uh, about how evolution works makes a lot of sense. Uh, I should also tell you that the vast majority of, um, well, there are people who disagree with evolution and believe in intelligent design. None of the, hardly any of them are biologists. Like there's a vanishingly small number. And there is a list of people who apparently question evolution by natural selection, and they're called scientists. You take a look at what they do, and a lot of them aren't biologists. The second thing is, so what happened was a, a group set up, um, there's more people named Steve in science who accept biology, oh, sorry, who accept evolution, than there are people who don't, scientists who don't accept evolution. There's the, the Steve list. And if you go look, you can find they're all signed by Stevens, Stephens, Stephanies, <laughs> uh, Estevans, Ishtvans. I think we got our, our friend Ishtvan, Dr. Imre, the dean. Um, there's more of them than there are all of the scientists. And they are mostly aren't really actual scientists who, who don't accept evolution. Um, you know what you don't need? You don't need an, a designer for this whole system to work. It's just not a good theory. You don't need a designer. It works without a designer. And it's not a scientific theory. So you can't test the supernatural with the natural. That's just not a thing. You can't say, but there's a magic, I mean, it's, you know, there's a supernatural being. Well, I can't really prove that using natural world. So that this is a dead end. You want to believe it, you go nuts, but it doesn't help explain any data. Oh, wow, that's literally exactly on time. Uh, I guess you'd almost think I've taught this course before. <laughs> Oh, good, the phone. Any questions I can answer before somebody answers the phone, hopefully? Oh, sounds like somebody else. Uh, I was actually uh, okay. waiting for the, pri the phone to stop ringing. Okay, good. What's up, Mel? Uh, so with the, the doves and yeah. uh, hawks and doves, basically it's just like, it's what I got from it was like, it's always like, um, when you said like 
per wait, wait, what did I write? Sorry. About like, you know, I guess the payoffs or the like the benefits. Yes. They change, but it's like only depending, like depending on like on who is, I guess, winning or not winning, but like the on poor who the, patient. On who the opponent is. It, it changes depending okay. on who, who the opponent is, but it also changes if if we changed these values that I just uh, picked out of the air, <laughs> I picked these out of the air to make the, the arithmetic easy. It's the only reason these are the values. Um, Cause they lead the whole numbers. That's <laughs> the only reason I picked these numbers. Uh, if these numbers change, so if the value of the resource went way up, it changes. If the value goes mm -hmm. down, it changes. If the cost of a wound goes way up, way up, in fact, if it goes up enough, as I said back here, there you go. If the value of a wound is higher than the value of the resource, being a dove is going to win every time because hawks are killing each other and they're not getting enough in return. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I thought, because I was thinking like, let's say, um, you know, when you were saying if hawks keep on fighting each other and then they're just fighting each other and then doves will have a, to be able to take that benefit yeah. and that's true because if, if everybody's a, do, a, a hawk and you're a dove being a dove will it will spread a little bit because frankly they're all fighting and hurting each other even if they're getting resources you will have times when you get something mm. right because there's you're not going to get hurt but it's only going to be true here if the value of a wound is higher than the value of the resource okay yeah. yep thank you no problem. Other questions or comments? Okay. Dave, uh, yeah. I just have one more. Yeah. I know it's, the, it's theoretical, but like, how would they come up with the value of like a wound if they're trying to <laughs> simulate a situation almost? Like, how, how okay. do they determine that? So, in the case with hawks and doves, it's just completely it's a it's a thought experiment. Okay. On the other hand, if we go to the examples here, let's go ahead uh blah 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 here we go so this is the amount of time these are toads looking for breeding breeding grounds so these are observed values that's the closed circles and these the, the uh, open values uh, open circles are the actual values what they have to do is figure out when you should go to certain um when you should go uh to uh, a different breeding ground right now, what you have to do is know enough about your, your subject species to be able to think of what are the costs and what are the benefits. And it's the same thing with, with, with the uh, dung flies, which that's, I can't, I got one day, I want to model something that perfectly. Um, in this case, again, you have to know what the costs and pay and, and, and benefits are of different strategies. And you got to figure out what the different strategies are. How do you figure out different strategies? One of the things you could do is just imagine it. The other thing you can do actually is if you're a theoretical sort of population biologist is you go talk to people that actually study these species and say, what are the different things they do? And very typically somebody will say, well, some hang around and leave early, some hang around forever. And most of them are somewhere in the middle. And you say, okay, so what are the different strategies? So that's the way you figure that out. And then you basically, sometimes you can actually, you can figure out the value uh, at different times of winning a, a contest because you can actually see how many young they have. So it, while it's the models tend to be come up with or often are come up with by 
very theoretical researchers, they're certainly in a conversation all the time with field workers, field researchers. So, and a lot of times people do both. A lot of times people do both. That's how you do it. You have to know a little bit about your species. Um, and like I said, when I had the, the question I had in graduate school, we were told everything about some mythical species. Um, it's actually a lot easier than you would imagine. It involves a little bit of familiarity with a given species um, or a lot of being able to go read other research on other species, which of course is easy to do. Yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah, I have a friend who's done this uh, a few times, done these kind of models, and it, it's it's remarkable how simple they are, but it involves knowing about your species. I have a friend who did some stuff on cash pilfering, which is, you know, uh, when does one bird watch another and how long should it watch another bird hide a seed? And she came up with a model and it worked pretty well. Other questions? These are good. You guys ask really good questions. I'm very impressed with all of you. Going once. All right. Uh, we'll pack it in for out on the edge of town. Everything's on the edge of town. Box stores, they are piling up. How I wish I could knock them down. Give them a coat. Give them a Shack, three car garage. 
with a house attached Neighborhoods in psychic flames From an outbreak of being the same There's so much less to this Than meets the eye There's so much bliss to miss But we'll get by If we walk away, walk away, walk away Walk away, walk away, walk away Walk away, walk away podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck.com at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.